I just think that this is such a fascinating turning point in history. But again, it's because people decided to get involved. Welcome to another episode of the Georgetown Public Policy Review podcast. My name is Eric Dank. Earlier this semester, interview editor Kat Pardo talked with GU Politics fellow Paulette Aniskoff. Paulette is the former director of the Office of Public Engagement at the Obama White House. She launched Citizen 44 LLC in early 2017, which oversees President Obama's engagement with political and progressive organizations and major supporters around the country to defend his legacy. Prior to joining the Office of Public Engagement, she served as Director of Individual and Community Preparedness at FEMA. In that role, she partnered with nonprofits, community organizations, and governments to promote effective disaster planning at the local level. Kat and Paula had a great conversation about getting into campaign politics, disaster management, and her time at the Office of Public Engagement. We really hope you enjoy the episode. If you do, please subscribe, like, and share with friends. On to Kat and Paulette. Um, so could you just give a quick summary of your career and what led you down the many different professional paths you've taken? Sure. Um, my career started in a really unusual way. I was going to take some time off to go snowboarding after graduating from college, and I just thought it would be the only time my life would be something like that. So I had planned to go to Steamboat, bought a new snowboard, gotten everything ready, was planning on waiting tables while I did a lot of... Um, you know, just taking it easy for the first time in a long time and enjoying it. And I went on a very, very long road trip before the snow and ended up in Iowa. Uh, I needed a place to stay and a good friend of mine was working on a campaign there. And I stayed with him for a couple of days and I started working and I was like, this is actually really fun but I didn't actually know this was a job. <laughs> Campaign jobs were just not something I had figured out how to get into. Um, I just didn't have any network or any connections to get into campaign world. And my friend's boss was like, you're good at this. You should just stay in Iowa. And I was like, no, 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 I have this plan. I have a new snowboard. There's no good snowboarding in Iowa. I'm out. Drove back to Colorado. And I was like, what am I doing? So I packed up my shit and I drove back to Iowa. And um, that's how I started on the Gore campaign in the uh, fall of 1999, before the Iowa caucus, uh, which was in January of 2000. And I worked with some of the best human beings that I have ever imagined, I could have, could have imagined, some of the best human beings I could have imagined. And um, a lot of those people are the people I stayed in touch with to get me a job on the Obama campaign, actually. But it was such a purposeful, fun, crazy job and such a, like, an amazing dynamic. And I got a lot of promotions very quickly and it felt like a meritocracy. And I just loved it. But I had no idea it was a job until I got one. So um, that was my start. And then I just never left. That's amazing. What a cool story. Um, a lot of your work seems to center on citizen participation in the political process. That seems to be something you really mm -hmm. value. Um, so what do you think draws you to that kind of work? I mean, obviously there was a really strong connection in this uh, Iowa campaign that you did not expect before. So what, what motivates that? Yeah, I think one of the 
most amazing jobs is to organize other human beings to do what they want to do. I think that um, the force of people getting an opportunity to just kind of create this network and solve problems, I just think it is so amazing. It is how the biggest problems have been solved in the world. Um, it's just human beings decide looking at each other and saying like, they're not doing it for us, so we just need to get to work. And I just think that is such an amazing opportunity. And to be a part of something like that, I just think is rewarding and um, uh, very special. But it's it's how the big shit gets done. You know, it's, it's how you solve big problems. So I had always been attracted to it. And one of the things that I kept thinking as I organized on campaigns was how applicable it was to other things. It just made so much sense to me that if you organized a group of people, they could sort of tackle anything. And campaigns were sort of my entry point for that. But I remember watching Hurricane Katrina on TV in 2005, long before I worked at FEMA, and just saying, if you just had thousands of campaign staff down there organizing this stuff, maybe this wouldn't look like this. Maybe this mess wouldn't be here. And organizing people to do things is what I do. And I just think it can apply to just about any problem. So um, I also believe so much that we do need a lot of citizen participation. And one of the things that my old boss, Barack Obama, always used to say, and I think we all agreed with him, was that people put it on him to solve problems when he was president. And he was constantly trying to get more people to participate. But they were like, nah, he's got this. We're good. And one of the silver linings that I've seen from sort of this Trump era is people saying, oh, shit, they don't got this. <laughs> I need to get involved and I need to do something and I need to make sure that I'm actually actively participating. And I just think that this is such a fascinating turning point in history. But again, it's because people decided to get involved. So um, I, I love the sort of arc of history of people getting involved in civic engagement. I love that you can apply it to any problem, big or small. Um, and I love that you can apply it against Trump, frankly. That's awesome. That's great. Um, so the theme of GPPR's flagship edition journal this year is Rethinking Governance. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you a few questions about the nuances of governance in your professional experience. So obviously you are a veteran of organizing and working on high profile campaigns. Uh, is governance at all affected by campaigning and the different strategies a political official may use in their campaign? Oh, that's an interesting question. You know, I think that um, uh, I will say the answer is yes and no. Um, I would say it certainly uh, Barack Obama campaigned on things like healthcare and climate change, and those were things we immediately wanted to put into every part of government. Um, so yes, but I would also say, I mean, I think there's that famous line that campaigning is poetry and government is prose. I think I'm probably mis misquoting it, but that's the basics. Um, government can, it has never been perfect. We are always trying to make it better. It is a really complex thing. I think everyone has a different definition of what government and success look like. But ultimately, I, I, I just feel like our, our job in sort of figuring out how to make the poetry into prose that helps more people um, is all about bringing people together, 
advocating inside of an agency for the things to go well and having outside leadership come in and advocate for the things they think are most critical. We have this really weird thing in our federal government where we appoint people to sometimes be experts in things that they're not or sometimes be experts in things that they are and to come in and, and have this surge of new ideas and energy. Um, and I think you know other countries generally don't do it that way. Uh, they have a professional career staff that sort of runs the government and they kind of come in and out. And we have this very special thing and it's got a lot of pluses and a lot of minuses to it. And one of the pluses is that, in my opinion, when you've got someone like Barack Obama, people are willing to serve their government who are experts who would probably never serve their government. They're willing to take a big pay cut and do what they're great at. And that is, uh, I think, fits in with a campaign promise and sort of like the, the hope that you know Barack Obama or other people can bring to that office. The others, and I, I would say this from a very partisan space, is that you know some people campaign on government not working and then go in and look to make sure it's not working. <laughs> and that doesn't seem like a very helpful solution to, to my eyes. Um, I think government is there to work for people. And so uh, that sort of touches, I guess, on the campaign piece and what you campaign for and what you campaign against. So yes, and then the no is that we've got these kind of amazing people who do the work every day of government. And a lot of times it doesn't change all that much when new people come in and out. And and that sort of allows us to have this sort of like steady federal presence um, that uh, can provide the things that we need across the country. And I, I do think there is sort of a, a beauty in that balance and sort of there being some change, but not 100, 180 degree change. Um, so that that's my yes and no to that. Okay, and we're gonna probe a little deeper yeah, on yeah. that. So real hot button issue in uh, campaign discussions right now is campaign finance laws. How do you Ooh. see those laws affecting governance and oh. the ways political officials choose to run their campaigns? Yeah. Well, I wrote my honors thesis on campaign finance reform. Mm. It was sort of devastating to learn more about it, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, campaign finance reform. So I would say the, uh, the money flow into politics, I think for some reason people think has a very quid pro quo element to it. And I actually don't think that's sort of the toxic piece. Um, no member of Congress for $2,000 is going to vote on something one way or the other. I mean, I think you'd have to be deeply corrupt for that to be the case. I think it's more about the fact that most members of Congress now, because they have to constantly fundraise, build a relationship with rich people who have their cell phone and their weekends and travel and spare time is now spent with just elite people who can write big checks. And that changes your viewpoint a little bit. And I think that itself is, is a little bit toxic. I think with something like Citizens United, the Supreme Court case, which I think was very my opinion was decided wrongly, well, no surprise there, um, is that we have this vast outside money pouring in and that can do a tremendous amount of damage in many ways and I think ways we don't even understand yet. Um, but I, I do think, I, I don't think the toxic part of campaigning is making a promise and then making money off of it. Um, I do think in some cases, you know, lobbyists have undue influence and that's, that's often the case. But it does change people's perspective. And I think when people are doing nothing but raising money and um, these outside groups can sort of spend 
whatever they feel like to attack someone, it does change the dynamic drastically. And I think part of the partisanship that we see now is because people know they will get the shit kicked out of them if they have a moderate stance. There is already a funded you know, group on the right that will come after them. There is someone funded on the left who will say they're not you know, for the working man enough or labor will come after them. And that has absolutely changed things. I mean, I, I think there is no middle ground where you, you, where you can sit and say, I'm gonna make a sensible choice um, because someone is always ready to attack. So you worked at FEMA as the Director of Individual and Community Preparedness. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your experience in that role? Yeah. You know, I link that role back to me sitting and watching Katrina and being horrified <laughs> uh, at the fact that our government could not figure out how to utilize people and um, make a plan that, that could save, save some of those lives. Um, I think that I knew in 2005 I wanted to work in disaster management and just didn't know how to get there. So I went a, you know, a way that no one else would do. I worked for someone I didn't think would win and eventually made it to the White House and then got to go into FEMA through the Obama administration, which is not really a, um, a path that I would have imagined. But I had always thought I could use my campaign skills of organizing human beings to go in and organize people for disasters and not just campaigns. And there is this... Um, office in FEMA that is literally designed to do just that and I found out about it and could not have been more excited uh, and applied for that role and one of the things that is fascinating I think FEMA is sort of this perfect microcosm of government it exists to make sure you know the most vulnerable people are not more vulnerable or die i mean it really is sort of like the bare bones necessity that you need from a government and it is you know it is the safety net and it's it's this infrastructure so society can build itself back up literally from the ground up after a major disaster and function again and uh, it's also very locally driven, which is, you know, in a federalism, in, within federalism makes a lot of sense for our country. So it's this sort of perfect microcosm of how government can function, I think, really well and do what it's meant to do. Um, and Republicans and Democrats always fight about the role of government and how big it should be. And I think no one really argues that FEMA is a necessity, right? I mean, it's, it's something that is, um, that is us getting people back on their feet after something horrific has happened. So I loved that it's sort of the perfect example, and yet there are a lot of politics in FEMA, right? And um, there are, you know, it's an overly white militaristic staff, which has changed drastically over the last 10 years, but they have a very specific outlook on what priorities should be. Um, technology has allowed them to do things like draw flood maps. And when they show the scientifically created maps to politicians, the politicians say, yeah, sorry, we're not using these because this means that people in New York and Florida with very expensive real estate <laughs> need to start paying a lot more for their insurance. So we'd, we'd like to not use these. There are some real politics. So it, it is a really fascinating um, place to sort of watch all of this bear out like what does this look like good government bad government politics coming into government so 
it was a huge learning opportunity for me, but also a place where I got to sort of use my campaign skills for good. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Um, and you kind of started to move towards this theme, but I wanted to ask, with climate change increasing the frequency and intensity of natural disasters, do you perceive a need to rethink governance as it applies to disaster response? Um, disasters are really expensive. That's one very obvious thing. Disasters make people move a lot. Those are sort of the basics. But one thing that I think is a, a huge problem is that, you know, when Katrina happened, when the disasters happened, when they were just less frequent, frankly, um, there's money, you go in, you fix it, you move out. And two things have happened. One, then becoming more frequent and more severe changes how much money they cost. But politicians are suddenly saying like, oh God, like I don't want to be pouring all this money into this bankrupt system where we're, you know, putting gobs of money into the same area that keeps getting flooded and that kind of thing. And they could become more expensive, they become more severe. And politicians also, <laughs> the same politicians who often say, I don't want to keep spending this money when it hits their town or their state, literally tell people, we are going to build everything back as it was. Every brick, every business, every... And that is just not true. And we have to deal with that reality. And I think if politicians could be honest with the people that they serve and say, nothing's ever going to be the same. A devastating thing happened in our community. We have to make some changes to the way that things were. And I know you don't want to hear that. But here are the things we need to do better. And... You know, I think New Orleans is now up to something like 80% of its former population from 2005. And I think New Orleans is a very special place and a unique example. Um, there are a lot of places where maybe we shouldn't rebuild. And, you know, maybe we should not be uh, thinking about how to build the same house back in the same spot to get washed away again. So I think there's this sort of convergence of politicians really wanting to say something that feels good in the moment, which is not true with the expectations that there will always be money in that account, with the severity and sort of uh, more and more frequency that we're seeing. And that sort of perfect storm of things just does not allow us to see, I think, FEMA functioning in the same way. Um, we have to figure out what that looks like. And I think it's, there are some hard truths. You know, one is science and saying with those flood maps, how are we going to let some people know that even though they're buying a million dollar apartment in Miami Beach, there's a good chance it could be underwater in, in 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of disasters in general, especially with climate change, they're almost not disasters because we know that they're coming, right? And a disaster is sort of an unexpected event. We know some of this stuff is coming and we are choosing not to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. And that to me is a really scary and startling thing. Um, and when I was at FEMA, we were consistently preparing for the big, big one. Um, uh, my boss at the time, Craig Fugate, felt very strongly that we were prepared for tornadoes and floods and your sort of day-to-day -day operation. But as storms become more severe, they take up much more um, staff, much more guidance, much more money, and they just swallow up everything in front of them. And we have to be prepared to tell politicians, we, again, cannot make your community whole as this begins to, to come into fruition. So he really started planning for, you know, 
does FEMA not worry about these day-to-day -day things? And the state and local governments figure them out. And FEMA literally prepares 40,000 body bags for the day that Memphis goes underground with an earthquake or, you know, really horrifying um, disaster scenarios that truly no one but the federal government could run and figure out and on their own. So um, that itself, I think, is a is something we just have to completely rethink. And that that began, I think, in a really healthy way. But again, you know, I keep bringing up New York and Florida, but New York and Florida politicians don't want to see those flood maps. Like we, we don't want to face reality. And I think the flood map is just one example of us avoiding the inevitable. Fascinating perspective. I could talk for hours about it. It is. It absolutely is. Um, but I want to make sure we cover all our bases here. Sure. So you also had a really um, interesting role with President Obama's administration as director of the White House Office of Public Engagement. Were you pushed at all to rethink governance in that role and your efforts to increase transparency and uh, accountability of the government? I think that... Um, in general, we were all encouraged to rethink anything that was in front of us, which was great. But there are a couple examples where I got to see it firsthand and I think really interesting ways. And um, one of them was because of a huge failure, which was healthcare.gov. And the, uh, <laughs> in case anyone missed it, <laughs> the website went down in a horrible fashion as we had geared up to um, have it be this massive kickoff and have millions of people sign up. Uh, it was a very, very dark time. Uh, and one of the things that that spurred, because I thank God something good came out of it, um, uh, was a thing called the United States Digital Service. And it took a while for them to figure out, like, after this mess, how do we make sure that this does not happen again? But also, are there some failures currently in government that technology could come in and help solve? And so I think one of the most fascinating things, and this was not my team, but one of the, the great things, and I, I got a chance to work with them, was the formation of USDS, the United States Digital Service, which was basically asking Silicon Valley and other tech bubbles to say, would you consider sending us your best for a short, you know, anywhere from three to 12 months, I think was usually the assignment, and help us fix some of these problems in government. Now you can imagine if you're like top tier tech talent, you're not dying to give up your sweet job and write off the potential that your company's gonna go public and just like come and work for the federal government in the last two years, Barack Obama's there. So this was sort of the, the way to get super top talent to come in and be helpful. And and it also was, I think, a really uh, something that both felt good to the people doing it, but also to the companies like they felt like they were helping make our government better. And so we had them attack major problems like a SWAT team. You know, they came in to solve very specific problems with technology. And there were, as you might imagine, problems with Veterans Affairs and their technology problems. One of the problems was that the Department of Defense and the Veterans Affairs have totally different software and systems, and a lot of people fell through the cracks when there was a transfer of one over to the other. That impacts many, many tens of thousands of people's lives and the people that we really need to be taking care of, you know, people who need help and are, are serving our country. So um, I think that part of the rethinking of governance is actually 
less about just saying we should privatize everything, which means we overpay contractors to come in and do some of the work, but not be held responsible for it, but say, who can we think about stepping up to help us solve this problem um, in a way that's patriotic and in a way that allows them to serve and doesn't force them to come just through a contractor route or just through uh, becoming a career staff or, or in the federal government as an appointee, but to say, we've got to figure out how to solve these problems. Some of them might be solved by technology. What can we do? So I think that can be applied in a lot of different ways. But that was something I saw that I think was a great example of rethinking government and something that um, as we were exiting, they continued. They, they didn't want it to end because of the Obama administration coming to an end. Um, I think it's not as utilized or as popular as it is, but they have attempted to keep it standing. And I do hope that even the concept itself is, is used across the board to solve big problems. And one of the things we see in an agency is you've got all these divisions and directorates working around each other. And a lot of times there isn't um, enough oversight of how all of these things integrate together. And that is a really hard job, and frankly, a job that not a lot of people want to be responsible for. Uh, and solving those problems are not easy. You know, you can't just hire a contractor all the time to come in. They can't always fix those problems. You really need um, leadership, not just expertise. And I think you sometimes need something like a technology background that, that you can't just hire very easily for. Otherwise, we wouldn't have had the healthcare.gov problem, right? And that was... Uh, a problem on a lot of levels. So, um, so that was one of the exciting things I saw that I just think, you know, we can, we, we've got to think differently. And uh, it's not as easy as adding more money and more staff. And it's not as simple as cutting the government and adding more contractors. There are more creative solutions than that. And I think Democrats and Republicans have to figure out um, that there are other solutions than the ones they always go to to see how that unfolds over the next few years leading yeah. up to the 2020 elections if we can get the parties to actually work together um so just a couple questions yes what advice do you have for students and young professionals who aspire to have a political career as dynamic and influential as yours i think there are um two things that are real takeaways that i i believe in so deeply one is that you have to be willing to take some risks. And it is not that risky to take risks when you're in your 20s. It just isn't. <laughs> um, you have got to be willing to get out of your comfort zone and just dive in on something. And it should feel risky. You know, maybe even the first 10 years of your career should feel kind of risky. And, you know, being on a road trip through Iowa and deciding that I should just stick around was... A risk at the time now doesn't feel very risky um, but I did a lot of that did a ton of moving around you throw your crap in a car you drive across the country and you land somewhere and you figure it out and I think it's the ultimate take a risk problem-solving work really hard sort of element and the other thing I would say is um, I did not think Barack Obama was gonna win I went to Iowa to work for him because I was certain that I would always be proud to have worked for him. And at the time, I was a political consultant. I was making good money. I was really happy. I was living in New York. And I just thought, now's the time. Like, if not now, when? 
And you don't have to be assured that you're going to have a win out of something if you know that you will look back on it and just feel so proud that you were a part of something. So I think taking risk and in some ways taking a risk for all the right reasons are two things that I would really encourage people to do. I never in a million years that I would end up in the White House. Some people want to end up in the White House and will look for a path to get there. It's not an easy path and I think you'll feel a lot better and just have a lot more fun and a more rewarding career if you're not trying to get to the White House. You're just working with people you believe in and having adventures for like the first 10 years in your career. I mean, I just cannot imagine someone would regret that. So those are my, those are my two pieces of advice. Yeah, I think that's really great insight. And so our last question is, have you read any good books or articles lately or listened to any good podcasts besides GPPRs? <laughs> so uh, I have two kids, so I fall asleep the second I open a book lately. Um, so uh, I have been a huge podcast fan. And over the past couple of years, since I stepped away from the White House, I've just started listening to a lot of podcasts. And um, I am currently at the end of season two of Slow Burn about the Monica Lewinsky, Bill Clinton thing. And now that I've worked in government and worked in the White House, it just takes on a totally different element to me. Um, and post Me Too movement, it's just really interesting to see what the fuck were we thinking in the 90s? Or what the hell were we thinking in the 90s? <laughs> <laughs> what the hell were we thinking in the 90s? Um, and that, that has been really cool. Um, a couple other favorite podcasts, I really like Ear Hustle. Cannot listen to that with the kids in the car. Not a good plan. Um, and Revisionist History, which was actually a recommendation from uh, President Obama. He loved it and recommended it. So I started listening to that. Um, so podcasts are the best. I've listened to them when I'm walking, when I'm working out. Um, they're so convenient. And you learn so much. And you just kind of get a chance to delve into topics that you might not have. So um, those are some of my favorites. Awesome. Take those recommendations for sure. Okay.